0: Hello everyone. This is Anderson's Odyssey. I'm Jacob Anderson. My guest today is Ben Keats. Ben is a tech commentator, ultra marathon runner, and Blake Leader. Ben, it's good to see you.
1: Nice to see you. It's been a long time.
0: Yeah. Have you been running a lot in in lockdown, or or what has that changed your kind of plan, or has it given you more time to kind of get exploring? Or
1: uh, I've been doing. Um, I haven't been doing a lot of missions away, but I've been doing a lot of running. So. Um, uh, both my sons are uh, uh, ex yelfies and, and obviously Yoni went on the expedition. And so Yoni's a big runner. So we did a couple of um, backyard 50k runs, uh, which was a bit mindless on a 200 meter circuit, round and round. Um, but I've run, I think I've run, other than one day, I've run every day for the past two and a bit months. So um, yeah, I've been doing a heap. Do you,
0: I mean, what, you, what your, your ultra marathon running seems to me. Like a this, there's, there's a another type of person. When you go past ma- running marathons, do you notice sort of different personalities or different types of people that get attracted to that that kind of long, like seriously long distance running?
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Um, it probably says something about all ultra runners that there's there's a um, increasingly or staggeringly high proportion of ultra runners are uh, recovering addicts. Um, uh, I'm not but uh anyway um I think it's um it's an interesting thing, and so um you know I really like like i ne- I never run with music or don't listen to podcasts while I'm running or whatever, and for me it's you know life is hectic and crazy and, and busy, and um I just love getting out there and just the rhythm and getting in the zone and just thinking and stuff so for me it's um you know i don't meditate but my, but my running is kind of meditative time for me um and I like. You know, I like the athletic uh, challenge. You know, I, I like racing. I've got a a group of mates that we we run together and, and race together, and you know, lots of banter and competition, and yeah, it's awesome.
0: But so, one hundred and sixty odd k's, isn't it?
1: Well, so so kind of officially, anything over a marathon is an ultramarathon. The the generally accepted definition is sort of fifty k and up. Um, but kind of the, um, the holy grail, uh, and it's, I mean, there isn't a holy grail because it's whatever people are into, but kind of the holy grail of, of ultra marathons is, is the 100 miles, so 160 kilometres, um, which is, uh, yeah, it's kind of like the, the sort of the, the, the ultra, uh, ultra, ultra, I guess.
0: What, what interests me about that is obviously there's an element of physical conditioning and then you must get to a point where it's no longer a physical test, but it's purely psychological and who's kind of the most resilient or, or has the strength to kind of just keep pushing the body. What are the sort of things that you guys are going through when you're kind of, you know, 10 plus hours into a into one of these huge runs?
1: I think, yeah, you're absolutely right. It's, it's not a physical thing at all. I mean, obviously you need a base fitness to be able to keep going, but... But beyond that, as you say, beyond, you know, five, six, seven, eight hours, it, it, it's all mental. Um, and I I really enjoy sort of exploring that space. So, um, I mean, it, it's, it sounds weird and it is weird and bizarre and whatever, but I, I quite like, you know, so these these 100 mile races, they take, you know, you know, the longest time I've been running is, is 29 hours, 29, 30 hours. And so you're sort of like 20 odd hours into a race. It's the middle of the night and you've been going. Literally all day, and, and you sort of have these, you, you almost kind of go out of yourself a little bit, and um, and sort of observe the way you're feeling physically and mentally, and um, you know it's always really interesting. Uh, you know the night times are hard, and you know the worst time is sort of that three, four, five a.m. when it's you've you've been running through the night and it's dark and it's cold, and, and then you see the sunrise and it's just uh, it's amazing because i think it's, it's uh you know I think it's a bit of an um sort of a metaphor for life that you know the sun always comes up and um you know there's a there's a book the not runner said that um uh it doesn't always keep getting worse or, or words to that effect and, and basically you know the sun will come up uh you know it'll feel better you'll get a second wind you'll finish the race and you'll get to sit down um and you know, you'll have something that you can, uh, you know, talk about over a beer, or reminisce with your mates over when you're when you're old, and tell your grandkids about, it and all that sort of stuff. It's um, you know, the the, the great thing about ultra running is that is, you know, you can't be, you know, a pro athlete. You can't make a living from it. But, you know, no one cares. Like it's a it's a bizarre thing. So you, you do it because it's it's all about the challenge. Um, and yeah, spending time in the bush, spending time with mates, you know, I'm lucky that that, you know, one of my sons, uh, you know, runs as well. And so we run together a bunch. And, um, yeah, what's not to like about about more time out in the outdoors?
0: Yeah, one of, I mean, one of the interesting things with uh, running and, and I guess with fitness in general now is we're seeing a lot more of these smart devices. Um, and, and tools we can use to enhance our performance or enhance the way we um, exercise beyond a smart watch or some of these other um, monitoring devices that people can just wear all of the time. How advanced do you think we might start seeing some of those things or how, how, how much more information can we start to gather that can really help us um, in some of those performance environments, do you think?
1: Yeah, it's really interesting and so, um, you know, there's an app that, that lots of runners and cyclists use called Strava which everyone tracks their runs and stuff on and, and, and we all, you know, we all use that but the interesting thing is observing sort of ultramarathoners versus, you know, say triathletes or whatever and triathletes are very scientific and every device, every tool, every carbon fibre this and that or performance improvement or, or, or a special diet or whatever. Um, ultramarathoners tend, it, it's, it's not black and white, but they tend to be a lot more relaxed about it. And, uh, you know, because at the end of the day, you know, if you're talking about, you know, whether you're talking about equipment or food, after 12 hours, everything tastes crap. And all it is, is what can you actually stomach? So that ends up being chips and lollies. Um, and everything hurts. So it doesn't matter how advanced your shoes are or your baggers, or your walking poles. It all sucks. Um, and so I quite like, um, you know, I used to be a cyclist and I used to get into the whole, you know, bike geek stuff and, and nice wheels and carbon fibre this and all that sort of stuff. I quite like with ultra running that, you know, you wear shorts and a t-shirt and a pair of shoes. You know, the most you can spend on your kit is probably $400, maybe. Um, and then other than that, it's just going out there and, and you know, getting amongst it. And so... As I say, it's it's another kind of reflection. I guess life is so complex, and there's so much going on. You know, like I'm involved in a bunch of tech stuff, so I kind of understand, you know, that whole data and measurement and all that sort of stuff. But I really like that with with ultra running. You know, apart from logging my runs in Strava, I don't do any of that. A lot of a lot of people do, and there are some really interesting tools. There's there's all manner of sensors that you can put on your shoes. Um, There's you know uh, nutrition tracking devices. Um, a lot of I've got a mate Who works for Microsoft And he's right into All of that sort of Quantified self stuff You know Where's one of those Weird rings that You know Senses your sleep In different patterns And whatever um, I Yeah I don't do any of that stuff Because it's all just a bit It's all just a bit complicated for me
0: it's, you know, it's funny It's funny you say that to kind of escape or, you know, detach because everything's happening really quickly. And we are seeing even more advances every day now. It seems like there's a new device or there's a new tool or even with, with COVID, people are adopting new technologies or adopting new things that they haven't before. What do you think are some of the the opportunities that we have or or some of the new technologies that we're starting to see emerging um that perhaps people aren't thinking about yet or that government perhaps isn't isn't thinking about where obviously the businesses are kind of at that cutting edge
1: yeah so i think um i, I mean i think you know technology is a really interesting thing and i think that um technology is a really useful tool that can be applied to a bunch of different situations, businesses, organisations, leisure, whatever. Um, so, so I'm a, I'm a, I'm a big, you know, proponent of, you know, doing better business or doing, you know, having better outcomes through technology. That's, that's a good thing. I'm not so keen on the whole technology for technology's sake thing because I think that's just a road to uh, waste and overconsumption and, and all of that sort of stuff. I mean, I think that. Um, you know, if if you think about the things I'm involved with, you know, you know, cactus, for example, you know, we make backpacks and clothing. Like it's 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 pretty old school. Um, there's some really, you know, there's some some great applications for technology and what we do. So things like having, you know, RFID sensors on on every garment, so people can, you know, track their their item and and look at its, at its provenance or whatever. Um, a bit of robotics and kind of artificial intelligence to kind of Um, increase efficiencies or whatever. So there's definitely aspects there. But as I say, I think those things are just tools to make existing things better. Um, I think in terms of, you know, the coronavirus thing, I mean, clearly, everyone's been working from home. And so, you know, Zoom is amazing. Um, You know, the fact that we can do this stuff remotely, clearly, you know, it's huge. And if this had happened even 10 years ago, it would have been a, a very different situation. And in fact, you know, down here in Christchurch, you know, it's 10 years since the earthquakes and, and the experience people have had is very different because working from home is much more, much more viable now. But I think the other thing coming from COVID that I'm really keen uh, for government to think about is, is resilience. And I think that um, we have for 30 or 40 years gone down this whole sort of neoliberal pathway, which is that you know, we'll be in part of global economy, we'll source our products from, you know, the cheapest place in the world and we'll uh, refine our supply chains. Um, And that's great because it means we can have, you know, great lattes and buy, you know, really cheap electronic goods or whatever. But it means that when the supply chains uh, fall down, we're kind of screwed. And so I think the conversation for the government is, um, or the society as a whole, actually, is how can we use technology and apply it to what we already do to deliver what we need. And so I think, I think, you know, the past couple of months I've been thinking a lot about sort of Maslow's hierarchy of needs and at that base layer, the sort of survival needs, you know, food, shelter, clothing, those sorts of things. We, we do that pretty well in New Zealand, but we've done it as a commodity product. And the only way to make more money out of a commodity product is do more of it, which is why you can't swim in the rivers, um, you know when there's actually water in them and they are dry most of the time uh and and all of those sorts of things so how do we move away from being a commodity player to doing value-add stuff and therefore a make our make our economy more resilient and our society more resilient but B, think about outputs uh you know across uh not just financial but also sort of social and environmental metrics so um i think that's the opportunity coming out of covid i think that um you know, a little bit disappointed in in the budget that it was um, it was a little bit light on the aspirational stuff. Um, kind of hard to do with a, a three year electoral cycle, but um, I think that's the conversation that we need to have going forward.
0: Yeah, there's a big question now around you know reskilling and these new job opportunities, and obviously there's a whole range of different ideas, and, and people are kind of doing all sorts of different things to stimulate that, but. Where do you think there's some key areas that we should be focusing our energy um, that, um, that would really help kind of accelerate or promote some of those, those, that kind of thinking?
1: So I, I, I think um, in two slightly incongruent ways about that stuff. I mean, clearly, you know, STEM, uh, you know, we need to train people to be able to, you know, embrace technology, use it and apply it to our businesses. So that, that's a big thing. But I also think, big, you know, back to the future. So if I think about, you know, cactus, you know, we make all of our stuff here in New Zealand, um, but we make it from imported fabrics because nobody makes fabrics in New Zealand anymore. And to me, that's bizarre. We grow the best wool in the world, and then we send it to Ch- to China to be made into fabric, which we then um, you know buy finished garments that are also made in China. Um, so, so you know, what would my vision be? My vision is that you know you have a look at a um, at a a region that isn't doing so well economically or socially, you know, Northland or East Cape or whatever, you take some money from, the Provincial Growth Fund that was was designed to kind of get those economies happening again, and and you build, you know, build a a factory to to produce fabric in one of those places, and, and, you know, local manufacturers will use that fabric. Uh, It's the same with forestry. I mean, every time I fly into Wellington, you know, I grew up in Wellington, I love Wellington, Every time I fly and I get really depressed because you fly over the port and there's that wharf just full of logs and all those logs are being sent to Asia to be turned into timber products that we then import back in as furniture. You know, 30, 40 years ago, we had sawmills all over the country. Every village had a sawmill and people would make things, you know, so we we made our own furniture, we made our stuff. So same deal with, with timber, you know. East Cape grows a huge amount of timber. You know, Last year they had the floods. All of those pine plantations that have been clear felled, all of the slash got washed down and created huge issues in Tokamaru Bay and Tolaga Bay and places like that. How about we have more sort of resilient, uh, you know, slower growing species, we selectively harvest, sure that costs more, but we take that selectively harvest timber and we process it there on the East Cape, get some factories set up making furniture, all of a sudden we've got a really high value product and it, we don't need to do we don't need to clear fill because we're getting more value you know per acre or whatever so I think um so, so I think it's yeah it's both things it's, it's getting technology and doing the advanced stuff but it's also thinking about what society in New Zealand looked like 40 or 50 years ago when we were much more sort of resilient
0: if we think if we think about the the primary production part obviously you know forestry agriculture but then the how we really try and imagine a new new zealand with um 5g and electric airplanes and you know charging stations everywhere and i mean i don't think range anxiety is a real thing but for people who don't have electric cars it seems to still be a a real thing how how do we kind of promote that or, or why why do you think this this is it is it purely a, a financial barrier that's restricting us from having these um kind of courageous ideas about you know having this amazing electric fleet in New Zealand as well as you know in ten years time having e v domestic uh, uh, flights up and down the country or why why do you think or, or from conversations you have with people that um we're struggling to get that um momentum or is it purely just the cost
1: i think i think it's a bit of cost so there there is a switching cost but there's also um there was a book written um a few years ago called innovators dilemma and basically you know it's a long book but basically what it says is um if you've got a heap of infrastructure and you've got a heap of people's um social context or life context revolves around a certain thing i.e you know Getting in the car, their individual car that they own, they probably use one percent of the time, filling it at a gas station with petrol or diesel, you know, driving in, you know into town in their own car with one person in it on you know big roads that are that are choked solid. That's their context. And they'll moan about it. Absolutely. They'll say the traffic's terrible, fuel's too expensive, I spend so much money on my car, but moaning about it is very different from switching context to, well, what I'm going to do is actually I'm going to embrace a, a, an e-mobility revolution. Um, I'm going to, you know, there's going to be pooled electric vehicles that no one owns, but anyone can can rent per kilometre or per hour or whatever. Um, similarly with, you know, e-scooters and e-bikes or whatever, uh, you know, there'll be electric buses, you know, mass transit options going around the place. I mean, all of that stuff um, is just hard to get your head around, um, and so uh, you know it's really easy to say the politicians have no vision. But if you're a politician that relies on being voted for to get in, and you're trying to push something that people can't even comprehend, that's that's a difficult equation. So, um, you know, I think I think that uh, what you know what's the solution? The solution is I think two, twofold. One is education so we need to kind of tell the stories you know weave the narratives so people understand what a different future could look like but also i think we need to change the system so the you know the electoral system we need to move on from from the three-year electoral cycle have a have a sort of have a you know a, a national agreement around where we're going and that sets some some sort of big picture uh, deliverables or whatever that happen over over you know decades um, and then all of a sudden we aren't in this sort of pendulum swinging wildly backwards and forwards that we, we currently are with the electoral system.
0: When I, and when I think about some of those goals I mean, with the freshwater announcement this week and then even, even with Predator Free actually, you know, it's fine and good to have this, this goal for 2050. But what we're currently doing isn't going to achieve the goal. It's, it's helping us and we're holding the line but if we continue to do what we're doing today until 2050, we would still fail. So there's still a lot of work with these kind of the roadmaps and in between. Um, and that largely comes from new innovations in technology and technology and perhaps with um, things that we haven't quite figured out yet, like genetic tools. How do you think we can use technologies and, you know, like what companies like Cacophony Project are doing to solve some of those um, conservation problems that we have?
1: Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, And so, again, it's twofold. So, um, you know, gene drive is probably, possibly, you know, the answer to the predator problem. Um, You've got a technology problem to overcome to actually make sure that you can do gene drive safely and effectively. But um, the bigger issue is the perception one. Uh, and so, you know, I don't think we should get into a 1080 debate. But if you look at if you look at the 1080 debate, that's a perfect example that the best intentions uh, sometimes uh, are misunderstood and are seen as a, as some kind of conspiracy. So I, um, you know, to say that it's te- it's a technology problem, I think is is too easy. And if we look at it through that lens, we run the risk of failure because what will happen is we'll develop the technology and then nothing will, ha- nothing will happen because we haven't done the education, we haven't put in place the policy framework, all um, these sorts of things. So, um, you know, I think, I think there's, you know, the predator-free one is really interesting because on the one hand, there's some amazing work being done with community trapping groups and, you know, localised initiatives. Um, and that's doing a fantastic job on a local level. That's not going to make you know one iota's difference to you know the national national parks, the dock, the dock, uh you know, land. So, so how do we change things there? Um, you know, there has to be a, a bit of top-down stuff, and and there has to be a, a mature understanding of of the greater good. And so, if for example, gene drive is the answer, and I'm not saying it is, but if it, if it, if it is, if that would solve the problem. Then we kind of need to accept that no solution is perfect and we we need to choose the, the lesser of two evils i guess and that's a really difficult thing to get across because everyone thinks their particular evil uh, is the worst um so i'm not sure what the answer um but it's a societal challenge and a, and a, and a technological one as well
0: when, yeah when i have conversations with people that we seem to end up back in that same Point over and over. That social license piece um, is is arguably more complex and difficult than the, than the science itself, uh, and that that that's the case in not just uh, predator control, but in COVID as well. You know, we're, we're seeing all of these kind of conspiracies pop up, and you know, even in, in vaccination is a kind of a crazy one because. Even vaccination isn't perfect. One out of, I don't know, just for argument's sake, like one out of a million people might have an adverse effect to a, to a vaccination, and then uh, that that can cause a lot of harm. But for, as you say, you know, for the most part, that risk versus opportunity has to be weighed up. And I think how we have those conversations with the broader public about all of these issues is is really important. And what I'm finding today is... You know in the middle of this pandemic uh, and for the most part the mainstream media doesn't want to talk about any of these topics they don't tend to um, dive very deep into some of the really meaty issues that we need to address as a society and there's a lot of there's a lot of people wanting to talk about this and have these conversations but there's not really a a, a big public platform or a, or a big public space where people have access to any of this information, and I don't I don't know what the solution is because there's so many there's so there's a huge appetite for it, but it's it's really strange because I I cannot see a place at the moment where there's um, where there's a an a, an opportunity for the general public to engage.
1: Yeah, it's a tricky one. I think that, um, so clearly media um, has been massively impacted by, you know, the rise of social media and all that sort of stuff and, and, and its train wreck and, and all those sorts of things. But I, I that aside, um, I think it's it's quite easy for us to blame the media for delivering what we, we as a society, demand. And so the fact of the matter is enough people are excited by clickbait, listicles, titillation, you know, what the Kardashians are doing to make it worthwhile the media publishing that stuff. So I, um, you know, it, it's to me it's kind of the same as the Trump conversation. And, you know, clearly Trump's a madman and uh, is insane and is stupid and a misogynist and all that. No one, no one well, no one I have any respect for disagrees with that. But to me, that's not the issue. The issue is that, however many people voted for him, Trump is a reflection of the society that voted him in. Boris Johnson and Brexit are a reflection of the society that did that. Um, and I and I think that uh, I think that on the one hand, um, you know, there was an article someone an economist in the states published yesterday that that just uh, um is, uh, is the leader of the free world, uh, basically saying that in terms of vision and humanity and empathy and leadership and all of those, charisma, all of those sorts of things, she is getting shoulders about, uh, about everyone. And, and so as New, you know, as New Zealanders, we can be very, very proud of that, of the fact that you know, we did crush COVID and, we you know, the mosque killing, you know, she told Donald Trump to, to just think about Think about muslims or, or whatever so, so all of that is true um but it's important to not rest on our laurels and to also be mindful that we have we have issues as well and i think that um it's easy to to see that and think that everyone thinks the way we do um but that's not the case so i think that um yeah i guess i guess media modern media tends to polarize things you know we're all good or we're all bad everyone is is one end of the spectrum or the other about one particular issue Uh, and people um, are much more sort of heterogeneous than that i think and that's um
0: that's Apparent all over the world, and you're seeing these same trends. But what we, I think, what we are seeing now is there is this increased appetite for longer-form conversations without the polarization and actually kind of just working through some of the issues in a rational and mature way, which it seems like there is an ap- appetite for. Um, yeah, I think I think that's probably a good good way to wrap up the the conversation. Ben, did you do you have anything else you want to add to that or? or, or or kind
1: of mention uh no other than the fact that it was disappointing that the um uh it's not called you off anymore but um blake 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 Inspire in april was cancelled but um uh, i'm looking forward to hopefully being there in october and um seeing some awesome students because i think that um what you know not just coronavirus but the mosque shootings and the earthquake and Uh, And my experience, you know, being a black leader and around those black initiatives has shown is that, you know, my generation, your generation aren't gonna solve these problems. It's it's the young people of today who who are gonna fix our screw ups. So um, I'm looking forward to to getting amongst it with with some of those young people and and seeing what what they come up with.
0: Yeah, I think that's a great point to, to end the conversation. Also, yeah, thanks so much, Ben. It's been great to have a chat with you.
1: Awesome. Thanks, Jack.
0: Cheers.